Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Eddie Pepitone has been called the Bitter Buddha, which also is the title of the 2012 documentary about the comedian, a New Yorker by birth, who has called Los Angeles' home for the better part of the 21st century since landing a role in the hit movie Old School. You've seen and heard him in many TV shows over the past decade, including The Sarah Silverman Program, Bob's Burgers, Marin, Community, and a recurring bit is Conan O'Brien's late-night heckler on Conan. His first Netflix special is In Ruins, and he plays a tortured soul in Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, which wraps its third season on Adult Swim this May. How close is that to real life? Pepitone sat down with me during the Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas, to talk about his comedic journey from Chicago city limits to Hollywood, with a detour into the chaos of politics after the 2016 presidential election. Also, he talks about his Twitter feed philosophy and how he can find any serenity today. So let's get to it! Yeah? Really? It's Eddie Pepitone? Let's go, baby. <laughs> We're going. So, Eddie, um, thanks for finally joining me. I was, As I was texting you to, to line this up, uh, the iPhone brings up our past text messaging history, and we were initially going to talk last year here in Austin oh, during South sorry by Southwest. About that. We exchanged text messages, but... And what happened? Did I bag on it? Did I cancel? You must have. Yeah. What it, goes on with me on the road is I love not having to do anything <laughs> like i have my show tonight right you know what i mean and in other words when i'm in la i'm really kind of busy like my days are, are busy with my little domestic shit like the doggies my wife you know and then running into errands. when i get on the road into a nice hotel room i can just lay here and write and like watch videos i was just watching a video of puddles the clown oh um, puddles middle Pity Party, who's here Puddles at Pity the Moon Party. Tower Mike, Festival, I, I'm you. not sure Mike's last name, but he's a sweetheart. We, mm -hmm. we were just talking a lot last night. He's a fellow vegan. Um, and, and, and it's so funny because Mike, I, I heard Mike wanted to meet me because he's a fan of my work. So we're, we're, we're just hanging out last night on the balcony mm -hmm. of the hotel. And everybody's coming up saying, Mike, I love your work. Like nobody for me, <laughs> but everybody for Mike. And I'm like, I should get to know this guy better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised that they know him out of uniform. They do. Hmm. They do. And he's got a big, nice poster up on the festival street here on Congress. You know how they've made right. um, likenesses of certain comedians. I'm not one of them. Have you thought about being a uh, being a character? Yes. Comedian? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Because um, here's the thing. I feel like when you when you're a character, mm -hmm. you can really say a lot of things um, easily that you that are difficult. I think it's more courageous. This is going to sound fucked up to all the people who do character comedy, but I feel like it's much more courageous to just be yourself on stage, right? And just talk about you know you know yourself and your life and the world around you, because as a character. Uh, you can kind of hide behind that character, right. you know. But but if it's a brilliant character, like Puddles Pity Party, uh, Puddles the Clown, uh, then it's it's great that you do it. But right. But then if you're like a Dan Whitney, who's Larry the Cable Guy, then at some point <laughs> people start confusing who's who. Yes, yes. That motherfucker's made a lot of money, yeah. and uh, you know, off of doing very little. Which is, it's always sad to see what the American public, uh, well, they embrace Trump, right? So they embrace Larry the Cable Guy. Right. There, there's a lot of dumb fucking people out there, I realize. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, this kind of segues back to um, what I was going to ask you, because since we didn't talk last year in Austin, but we're talking this year in Austin, what is the benefit of, of this extra year? How 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 what do you what do you have to tell me that? Oh, you, I'm a little more mature. That like, you wouldn't have had to tell like, me a year like ago. I'm what a little more mature, right? I'm a little more mature. Mm -hmm. Like it seems that you know I'm 58 now. Not to brag, 
that I've made it that far. A lot of people think it's, uh, you know, it's not good to say how old you are because people are ageist. You know, they discriminate against, they discriminate against you if you're over 25 in Hollywood or if you're over 35 in Hollywood, you're dead, especially if you're a woman. But um, I think in comedy, it means that uh, you've, you've passed the threshold of dying young. So now you're going to stick around for 30 more years. <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, but what I've noticed incrementally is mm-hmm. that I get a little mature, more mature. And, and an example of, the, of that is that I is that I made time to do the podcast with you mm-hmm. instead of indulging myself in just uh, napping and, uh, you know, kind of kind of isolate. I'm a bit right. of an isolator. Like even, you know, like I bemoan the fact that I'm not as social as I want to be mm-hmm. when I'm in L.A. But I realize when I'm on the road, it's funny. I realize I don't want to be that social. Like I like kind of my time sipping a coffee. Coffee's always involved. Uh, sipping coffee, writing, reading, uh, not dealing with any I find people to be complex and irritating and but now here's the thing yeah. what's different is that I also realize that I need to make more of an effort to be social and you know meet obligations and stuff like that instead of because what happens when you isolate is that ultimately that backfires on you too like taking a character like Larry the Cable Guy right. uh, it's like you 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 have to kind of come out you have to come out and say hey hey who, we, because then when I want to play when I'm finally in the mood to play then maybe people aren't going to be around because I've said no so many times you push them away Somewhat. Were you were you that way as a young comedian, or were you more social and more tolerant of being in the mix and mingling? And that's networking? a good question. I think when I was a young comedian, I was I was more tolerant of. Um, uh, I think just being younger um, made me, you know, more energy. Like as you get older, um, you need to conserve your energy. Like there are times when I'm headlining where I really don't want to see anybody that whole day before the show because um, the hour-long shows take a lot of energy and I don't want to squander it, you know, talking to somebody uh, about their horrible existence. (laughs) You know what I mean. Right. Well, speaking of which, uh, I feel like in the the past year, also your... your Twitter account, which I love, uh, has gone from being ahead of the times to being very current. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about that. Well, about you, that. you have a, you have a, um, not a technique. A um, yeah. You you favor this uh, philosophy on Twitter where you <laughs> yeah you. You get you uplift people's spirits and then you bring them right back down, and um, I feel it's. <laughs> In I can't help it. In 2017, it's so much more relevant. I, f- I feel like people. Tell me, what do you mean? I feel like because I'm not aware of it. In the in the uh, well, the before Trump era, people might have gone, "Oh, that's just Eddie being the bitter Buddha." Um, mm. But in 2017, in the in the Trump, whatever this is, I feel like people are so. <laughs> shocked about what's happening in the world around them. They're assholes, by the way. And there's a lot of confusion about what's going to happen. So to have you kind of make light of of the tragedies that exist among us, uh, I think, reminds us of what's happening. I warned people that this was coming. Yeah. You know? You know, Trump is a manifestation of a uh, corporate dictatorship which is what we have in this country like people uh, I think before Trump got elected people thought or liberals particularly quote unquote liberals Mm -hmm. particularly thought we're doing fine Uh, you know Obama um, very nice face to the corporate state and people were fine with it Um, and now that they have a guy who's got an ugly face to the corporate state and is kind of like gloves are off now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, 
I think people are, are all of a sudden shocked that this happened. But this was coming down the pike for a long time, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, fascist leaning, you know. And, yeah, so what else? I'm a comedian, right? So what yeah. else am I going to do? But, you know, kind of go for the absurd angle. There are times where I get very angry, um, well, at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, that's the, that's the line for me being a comedian is like, how do I turn my anger into comedy as opposed to it just being angry? Because I've had sets where I never turn the anger into comedy, but it just was angry and people I realize don't like that. Right. You know, at least these people who come out on a Friday, Saturday night, they want to have a good time, quote unquote. Unless, you know? unless your anger is such a caricature, like sometimes, right. like sometimes Lewis Black can be, where people are laughing just at the sight of his anger. Right. Now, that's when I'm doing okay. And that's when almost the, his character comedy. Yes. It's true. It's true. Uh, but that's when I'm doing okay, when the, when the anger has a nice absurd tinge to it mm-hmm. or a caricature, caricature of what you're saying. And then, you know, and that's what I go for is like um, that the anger is jacked up to such a level that people see that it's absurd to be that angry. And that's kind of my, my thing. You know? <laughs> like your heckler character on. Yeah. But as a younger comedian, did you have that anger? Then? I did. I did have it, except it was completely unfocused. I had no idea how to harness it into any kind of coherency. I had no idea. Um, so I would just have that anger, almost not even being aware of it. And um, it, it was kind of unbridled, and um, I didn't really know what to do. with. It. I, it took me a long time to figure out what I was doing as a stand-up. Were you do it? Did you do stand up first or improv first? Because I I did looking stand back up, at your bio, I was surprised right. to see that you had some improv chops back in the day. Yes. Well, what happened was I started doing stand up. That was the first thing. I always wanted to be a stand up comedian. My big hero, um, I think, even more than Carlin, was Richard Pryor. Like I was really into Richard Pryor and what he did, and I wanted to be Richard Pryor, um, the white Richard Pryor. Um, so anyway, as a New Yorker, yeah, that's that's weird that because you wouldn't pick Carlin, who's also a native New Yorker. Yeah, you went. I love Carlin, but but what was it about some, Pryor that spoke I think to you he more? was more emotional than George Carlin. Okay, I think Carlin got more emotional as he got older, like more angrier. And I like there, I've heard a lot of people who said, "Oh, I don't li- I don't like Carlin." Toward the end, he was too angry, and that's when I really started to dig him. <laughs> so. To me, Carlin got better. Um, but anyway, I, I think I related to Pryor's emotionality and how fucking uh, raw his stuff was. You know, he even did character stuff like Mudbone, nice. you know, um, The Junkie. I mean, really good stuff, you know. Um, but what happened f- to me is I started co- stand-up, and it was so difficult for me. Like I said, I didn't know what I was how doing. How old were you? I was um, about... I think I was about nineteen twenty. I know kids start today when they're thirteen, but I I, I was about nineteen twenty. <laughs> that's that's the that's the uh, the joy and the danger of the internet. Is it? Yeah. Is it makes you think? Oh, I'll just be a yeah. comedian. I'll yeah. Be on YouTube. I, I don't know what they I'll have to my, talk about. I'll do my skits on the YouTube. I don't know what they have be to talk about. Be a YouTube star. Yeah. YouTube stars are the worst. Um, Vine stars are the best because there's no more Vine. <laughs> Is Vine done? Yeah, Vine is done. So what are those people doing now? They're going to Instagram? Where are they putting it up? Snapchat. Or Snapchat. Snapchat, you know, uh, it's hilarious because I have Snapchat on my phone. And Mm -hmm. this this shows I'm old. And I tried to do a couple of Snapchats. (laughs) But I also just find it to be such an incredible waste of time. (laughs) And I watch a couple of my friends doing Snapchat. And they're funny, but... I'm like, what does, where does this, what is this about? Like, this is, this, this, this is nothing, this has got nothing to do with anything, this, mm-hmm. this, this shit. <laughs> it's like you do a little, I think it's, I don't know, eight seconds or 10 seconds, whatever it is, in increments, and you could add as many as you want or whatever, but it's right. like, 
this means nothing. Is is the bottom line to it's it? It's fleeting. It's it means absolutely nothing. The technology nothing. itself is fleeting. I think but it's hilarious it's... that Vine is gone. What happened to Vine? I thought it was doing so good. I guess. Uh... Why Why did they get rid of Vine? I mean, everybody was on Vine. I thought. Uh, or did they go to Snapchat? I, th- I think I think Instagram and Snapchat started. Realize- Are people putting a lot of videos? I'm can- seeing them on on Instagram now. Like yeah. people doing video videos on Instagram. Yeah. I, just, I just I just read something recently that more people are watching the videos on Instagram now than looking at the pictures. Holy shit! To me, it's such an incredible waste of time that we sit there with our phones, mm-hmm. and it's not like I haven't done it. So I'm speaking from like having done it, but sit there with our phones and watching people just do these videos about what they're doing, and what it does is that you get jealous. Of what they're doing, like, oh, I wish I had gone to Coachella or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> or I wish I had that many friends. Like, you watch them with their friends and, and, you know, if you're a sad person like me, you go, oh, I wish I had that many friends or stuff like that. And then the second thing is it means absolutely nothing. It has no artistic value, these things. It has no redeeming value. It's just such narcissism. And especially with all the stuff that's going on with Trump. And the corporate state taking over and the fact that our environment is, is extremely threatened and people, so many people are out of work. It's, it's, it's such a narcissism in face of a real time where we need to build um, community. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe it builds community, but I don't think it does. I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's look at me, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And people sit around watching that. And then they sit around taping it like – like, what's your feeling? It seems like you don't agree with me. No, I do. I was just thinking about how, in terms of politics and business, mm-hmm. it feels like everyone's so driven by their own personal profits. Yes. And then, and then sitting here talking to you about comedy, I was thinking about how the arguments I have with people about this current comedy boom and whether it's still go- whether it's still growing or whether it's peaked – a lot of it has to do with whether it's a boom creatively or a boom financially. And I see Well, why can't it be both? I see right now I see in 2017 I see a lot of people in the business just trying to cash in while the boom is still happening before right. it busts. Ah. Before all of these platforms start to go away. Ah. Because there's no money in it and Yeah. Yeah. Like I have, you know, if I'm a manager or an agent, just kind of get these get these comedians as much work as I can on whatever platform has the money right now. Like Netflix, you mean? Netflix and CISO and right. Crackle and Hulu mm, and Right. Well, yeah. I mean I understand that you wanna you see, it's so hard to be um, you know, a comedian, a performing artist, an actor. It's tough because the traditional um, portals or or entries into making money are the networks and the studios, and they're difficult. They're they're extremely difficult. They're extremely fickle. They're extremely specific who they want, and they have such a limited amount of stuff. So all these other platforms are a boon. You know, to comedians. Right, so Netflix, Amazon. Um, it's like, fuck, yeah, we can make shit. You know what I mean? Someone will and pay us money. And paid to... for it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's only a, such a finite amount, you know, with the networks. And, they, and, they, and, 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 and the networks produce such um, mainstream horse shit on the whole. On the whole, they do. I mean, right. they've been forced a little to the left, I think, on that by all these other platforms they've they've had to be a little edgier but still i turn on you know my fucking television and see these horrible horrible sitcoms they still exist and the worse they are the more popular they are which leads me back into how there are so many dumb people out there i was i was talking to a non-comedian friend in austin earlier today and he wanted me to explain how trump won and my first answer was russia and then my second answer was uh we underestimated the just how many stupid or gullible people there mm. are out there. Well, to me, the first, uh, the, my first answer would be the Democrats, 
are just completely mm-hmm. incompetent and they, they, they lost touch with the people they're supposed to represent. So, in other words, these, these quote-unquote deplorables who voted mm-hmm. for Trump had really they, – they, the Democrats paraded out the worst possible candidate they could. And they undermined Sanders. I mean, this is my right. – you know, and, I'm, and this is not an original thought, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, I, I – you know. It's amazing that Hillary Clinton and her campaign lost that election to a reality TV star, and the Democrats have to blame themselves. They they can't blame Russia. This whole thing about Russia is, to me, such a fucking horrible red herring by the Democrats that deflects them from taking blame for what they did. And it is just disgusting to me that they are saying that the Russians lost them the election. I mean, no, Hillary and the Hillary campaign lost that election. Well, that's just uh, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> right. I mean, you disagree. Because, so, it, well, but, no, I think we're I think we're arguing two, two different sides of the same thing. I think the yeah. Russians were able to get away with what they did because it was about Hillary. Mm -hmm. I don't think all that fake, all that propaganda machine that was being pushed through Facebook to the, to the gullible, stupid people who were retweeting it and passing it around this pizza gate and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. None of of that would have, none of that would have, would have really captured the, the attention of, of the electorate. If it had been somebody else, Here's but because it was Hillary, they were more willing to buy. You're probably right. Buy into that. You're stuff. probably so, right about that. I agree with that. However, I don't think it would have made a difference if Hillary and the Democratic Party mm-hmm. were really connected to the working people of the country. Oh yeah, Hillary's a fucking elitist, and that whole establishment—not just Hillary, that whole Washington establishment of Je- Democrats—call them corporate Democrats. Mm-hmm. They don't give a fuck about the average average person and they knew that and and donald shithead clown <laughs> donald clown fuck face mm-hmm. for for all the for what a dummy a dummy he is he did know how to push the buttons of these people he's a salesman. saying i'm gonna bring the jobs back and i'm not a politician yeah. and that's what they wanted to hear now they're idiots for not seeing through him right because I, you know, I'm I'm a big working class guy. I knew that he was so full of shit. And now look at all of the people he's appointed and what they're doing. Yeah. And and now the people who voted for him are like, oh shit, <laughs> we shouldn't have voted for him. But Clinton and the Democratic Party, the, uh, they 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 were susceptible to all that bullshit, all the fake news. Mm-hmm. They were susceptible to it because they don't represent. They don't represent the average fucking person. This country is a, de- in the words of my favorite author, Chris Hedges, is a deindustrialized nightmare. All these corporations have taken their jobs out of here, and these people are left with fucking nothing. And yeah. Trump comes along and says, I'm going to bring coal back, which is a fucking joke. You know, but they don't have anything. No, and even the retail jobs are leaving now. Is that right? Yeah. Why aren't they being stopped? Because they the- have the money. And the yeah. money controls the politics. These puppets. And so people are like, well, I'm not going to vote for that puppet. I'll vote for this puppet who mm-hmm. says he's going to change things. She thought everything was fine. She fucked up. Her campaign fucked up. And Sanders was the one. They fucked him. You know, Wasserman Schultz, the DNC. Yeah. They fucked him. The media fu- The media is hilarious. And then we'll get onto other stuff. But the media is <laughs> hilarious, too, that they fucking gave all of this media coverage to Trump and none to sanders who had trump's message but for real right i mean that's a that's a huge failing on the part of the media oh um, they're so, they're cunts so and let, i mean that in the british way so let me <laughs> so let me try to so let me try to bring this back then so, so <laughs> yes. when you were so when you were 19 or 20 in new york city mm-hmm. uh so we were kind of in a in a um in an echo of this universe where carter was bringing down the Democrats and Reagan yeah. was the was the the flashy reality. The yeah, actor. you're right. You're right. Where, this isn't new, were right? You, but but when you were first getting on stage, were you as passionate about the political situation then, or were you just more trying, um, trying to trying to entertain the masses? 
Well, I was very – I was a lefty always. My dad was a union mm-hmm. leader, and he gave me a book to read, The Rich and the Super Rich, when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, so I always, like, had that bent. But when I first started stand-up, I was terrified. I was just trying to make people laugh. And I'm one of these guys – yeah, I may be political and maybe have a political bent – but uh, I, I'm addicted to, to laugh, like to getting people to laugh. And mm-hmm. like I have this psychotic, almost psychotic need to get approval from audiences. However, as I've gotten older, I have gotten much, much better at like, okay, they didn't like that. You know, that's okay. Let me just, you know, even though I do look at audience, if audiences aren't laughing at what I'm doing, um, I, 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 I don't just go well. Fuck them. I try mm-hmm. to. I try to make them laugh, and I always look at my act. I always look at okay, what did I do that night that they were so, you know, disengaged from me, you know? And I'll tape everything and kind of listen to it. But I am much more consciously political now than I was when I started. To answer your question, well, when you started, also it was kind of the first heyday of comedy clubs. It's true. And I got you did know you, did you in know, my hilarious did you my, know that at the time or no no you see I never I'm always a person who like just does what I want to do like I don't look at the war I don't go oh this is the heyday of comedy clubs mm-hmm. let me get in there I'm like well where am I at and and I couldn't do stand up when I first started to to finish my evolution mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Um, as a solo performer early on because it was so terrifying to me. I would like throw up before shows, you know, I would, I was that nervous and I had to like start taking improv courses, sketch comedy. I had to work with others first and then I went back to stand up after like 10 or 15 years of that. Really? 10 or 15 years? And acting classes. I was, I was big into acting. Mm -hmm. I, I studied in, uh, 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 a couple of acting studios uh, in Manhattan for years. I love, I love theater. I love drama. You know, I love that shit. I loved acting. Were um, you Were you going out for more stage productions or yeah, TV? Stage. Not, did did not you see lot. that as? At what point did you did you not see that as the path and were like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give stand up another shot. I'll tell you when I. I I just whatever productions I would do, like we would, you know, I'd be in acting classes trying to do something serious, and people would be cracking the fuck up. But you know, I did do, you know, I did do some dramatic stuff. Like I was the lead in an Arthur Miller play called View from the Bridge, mm. uh, which was a really serious play. Um, but Is that I was off always Broadway, a, or yeah, off Broadway. Um, maybe off off would be the correct term. <laughs> But it was in the Raft Theater in New York. It okay. was like 42nd Street. But um, um, I always uh, was drawn to comedy. And, you know, that passion I had for prior and stand-up when I was young never left me. And so when I finally got enough confidence as a performer, I just started slowly again starting doing stand-up. And it, it's, been a, it's been a, you know... Where, Evolution from where me. did you go that first time coming back? Um, I well, it was in New York, and um, I I just you remember knew, how you did it. I think I think one of my friends. There were always these. I'm like the king of the alternative venues, you know. And right. one of my friends was running like a a venue at uh, a restaurant called B Three Avenue B and Third Street, and they named the rest, restaurant B3. at the Cross Streets, you okay. know. And uh, it was a basement show and it was so it was one of those it it got bigger and bigger and hipper and hipper and I just felt real confident there and I just started to do my thing every every night and then I would find other venue and then I just started bopping around you know how it goes once you start doing you you start meeting people and they're like well I run this over here and then and then then I just started performing all over New York uh, doing that stuff did anybody remember you from your first stint as a college kid I don't think so (laughs) I don't think so I was did you recognize anybody I don't. I don't think so. No, no I was very kind of undercover when I was doing it as a col- you know, yeah. college age guy. Hmm. Yeah, I was very undercover going to these like weird open mics. You know, when did you start doing the improv with Chicago City Improv? Um, I started doing that. I think um, I don't know, ninety maybe. Okay, 
something like that. I'm ba- I'm very bad at dates, but <laughs> but I was doing stand up and improv at that time. Okay. And Chicago City Limits was really cool. It was like such an extension of like you know, and they had a great reputation. And uh, so I was then touring for the first time in my life with with uh, a bunch of comedians. Yeah, I'm tr- I was trying to picture that you in an improv group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was never great. I was never great because even even in an improv group, like my strength Mm -hmm. was doing stuff solo, (laughs) and so it just led me back into stand up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I always wanted to be uh, the center of attention as well. You know, even in the improv group, which isn't good. You have to be a good listener, right? And I was not. (laughs) Were any of the people you were touring with? uh are they still in the business? You know Sean Conroy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sean was my buddy. Okay. He was so great. And Sean still does great improv with uh, uh, the uh, main stage Ascat. And, um, I know Paul Shear was in Chicago City Oh, Limits, Paul that Shear. Was That's that, right. Was that with you? or after Yes, you? I was with Paul. I was above Paul, which is hilarious because of the arc of his career. Right. He was a kid when he started. He was a total kid and a sweet kid. And you could tell he was funny, but he didn't really completely blossom. you know. But you could tell he was a super funny guy. And then he got huge. He yeah. got huge. Paul. Um. <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to picture. Did, did uh, Chicago City Limits? Did you have costumes, or did you just wear no. your street clothes? Well, well, yeah, yeah, just just clothes. Because some just, improv groups have just their our own, clothes, but we had a... shirts where they would wear like no, t-shirts. oh god, no. We just wore whatever we wore, but mm-hmm. we did have a table backstage of uh, shit we could throw on if we wanted to, okay. like little little like accoutrement props or whatever. Did you like? Props? I, I, I was never really big on that. <laughs> I was always trying to figure out what the fuck was going on stage mm-hmm. that I didn't have time for <laughs> fucking props. We didn't use many props, really. Thank God. Okay. You know what I mean? Well, the first time the first time I and many people saw you was in old school. Oh, uh, yeah. And that came and, uh, through uh, Chicago City Limits. Scott, Scott Armstrong, who wrote Old School with Todd Phillips, okay. was a uh, student. At um yeah, because I know that film UCB actually yeah, because I know because I know that film and then School for Scoundrels and they were yeah there were a lot of support little small roles that were like UCB yeah guys were getting those yeah is that and how Scott I was doing some improv stuff with UCB through Sean mm-hmm. who got me into UCB Sean, okay and uh, so I started doing stuff with them and Scott saw me and it was after a show and he said hey. Uh, got this movie in production in hollywood would you like to play one of these parts i was like fuck yeah (laughs) and i and i all of a sudden i was in uh, venice beach hollywood we were filming in pasadena but i i my friend who i had a buddy from new york who was staying in venice and he was like yeah you could stay with me in near venice beach and i was like this is fucking awesome i had never been to la and i was like i like this place and i uh and then we filmed and all of a sudden i'm with you know, the three leads in that movie were Will Farrell, Luke Wilson, and Vince Vaughn. And yeah. we were just hanging out with these guys for months. We I filmed for a long time. And you still lived in New York at the time. So you, yeah. Was that was that what convinced you to move yeah. west? Yeah, basically. Did you think old, old yeah, school who knew that would it? be Who knew that would be my uh, apex? Yeah, did you think <laughs> did you think that was going to change everything? Yes. Like being in this? <laughs> yes. What what happened in reality? In reality, it 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 uh, it was great, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it was a nice credit. But you know, in reality, it didn't do that much for me at, at all, you know, um, because you know you you know coming to L.A., you got to kind of build your reputation. You kind of got to build your relationships, like any any place. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it wasn't a big enough role. This was the real key to it. It wasn't a big enough role to make any kind of fucking difference. You know, I basically was kind of a glorified extra in it. Right. They cut out a, a funny fucking scene I had with Will Farrell, you know. Mm. So I, I didn't get like a big push from it. Okay. You know? Was were you were you were you already isolating at that point? <laughs> So moving to LA but then isolating that no, kind of hurts. No, your, no, I wasn't. Because LA is one of those places where if you move to LA or if you move to New York, you really have to pound the pavement. Yeah, I mean, I was not. I, I, you know, because I was, I was like, holy shit. You know, you can't, like you just said, you know, you can't isolate when you're in a new place. You got to go out and perform. So I performed a lot. I performed a lot uh, when I first got to LA. I've okay. always performed a lot. I've, that, that's all I do. 
That's <laughs> all I do. As much as I say, like recently, I, I became a paid regular at the comedy store just to like fast forward it to mm-hmm. now, uh, because I was always kind of afraid of the comedy store. I always thought it was kind of just a dark shitty club place and now it's turned into this fucking mecca and it's intense and it's great and i've been doing all these fucking spots recently at the comedy store which have been so good for me you know because they're they're club audiences you know but they're good and it's been good for me to stretch and try to be more disciplined in what I do. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when I get too angry and when I'm too political. And, like, I'm I'm just really at this age. I just – I'm always learning. I mean, that's one thing about stand-up. I don't know what you're uh, – what you feel about it. But, like, I always feel like it's such an interesting art form in the sense that it's so – it's so nuanced and particular sometimes. You know what I mean? Um. Yeah, in other words, it's always shit to learn. It's yeah. always shit to learn. It's it's kind of like uh, golf in a way. I don't golf, but I, I no I'm sure how, I know what you're. No matter saying. how good at it you are, you're always you always feel like you're struggling, and you're always trying to figure out how to get exactly, better at it. exactly. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah. What what was how were you able to overcome your past feelings about the store? Um, because of this guy Adam Egit who runs okay. it. He's a sweetheart. When they changed the Booker, and yeah. He's a sweetheart, and the vibe has just changed, and the and the comics have been so welcoming to me. Like they've been so fucking nice. Joe Rogan is taking me around. You know, it's like fucking <laughs> just sweethearts. Everybody's been a sweetheart to me. Is it uh, is it a shift internally to to not be that alt guy that you were in the nineties? I think I'm still considered that alt guy. Um. Um, but it's definitely a shift for me mm-hmm. internally to perform in front of crowds like that and, uh, you know, kind of realize that I can talk about mainstream stuff in a way that I like to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. you, like the opener of your Netflix special where what you're asking for that? rounds of applause. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I take that. It's a mainstream thing. But then you you take it your own way, and you. I did that at the comedy store the other night, and it worked really well too. And I took it. I did the round of applause thing, and I take. I always like add new shit to it. And this time I was doing round of applause if you're afraid of success. (laughs) Round of applause if the reason you're afraid of success is because you know that if you become successful, you're going to have to get out of the familiar surroundings that bring you comfort. And so you'd much rather be a mediocre failure. Round of applause. And people were cracking up because it was such a, it was such a real, Eddie, you're hitting deep here, right? It was (laughs) such a, you're cutting to my core. Yeah. It was such kind of a real thing. I, I I kept going. I named my website, the comics comic. And now I really feel like I am that kind of underground non-success. What do you mean? <laughs> well, the term comics comic is usually applied to people who should be more successful. Oh, right, right. But, yeah. But will never be. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of, I've almost like pigeonholed myself as, oh, yeah, I'm that website that people know about, but nobody really knows. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Only yeah, more yeah. people know. That is a gift and a curse, you know, being the, the comics comic, you know, yeah. like uh, you're like, oh, yeah, man, he's a comedian's comedian, which means they love you. But, uh, yeah, you haven't broken out of, like, that small, narrow thing. But those big masses who watch those dumb sitcoms don't love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's a blessing and a curse. Because the blessing is you're not on one of those dumb sitcoms, but the curse is you don't have the... The curse is you're not on one of them. It's a, the, the gift is you're not on one of them, and the curse is you're not on one of them. What do you and, and both are true? Yeah. So what do you what do you tell yourself? Um, oh, I lie. As a, as a comic, how do you what do you what kind of advice do you tell yourself, or do you seek out that helps that helps you at, at this stage of the game? At this stage, yeah. Um, I think I think you know. Well, look, this is going to sound cliche, but I think the only thing you can do, man is like if you're really an authentic comedian, if you're really an authentic comedian and you're not like, okay, I've never been a guy who can calculatingly go for money. Mm -hmm. I just kind of do what I do and try to improve on that. And if that brings me, you know, success and notoriety, then so be it. And if it doesn't, 
Well, you know, I mean, look, the way my life has unfolded, it's like like all of a sudden there was a documentary about me. All of a sudden, Mark Marin. This is before the documentary. All of a sudden, Mark Marin popped into my life and asked me to start doing these live WTF right, things. And people got of, to know me. Yeah, the very beginning of WTF, yes, you were a yes. regular Now, he's since gotten rid of me Yeah, um, <laughs> because he got big and he's a prick. But um, he, uh, you know, he people that. got to know me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, uh, then all of a sudden, somebody turned up and wanted to do a documentary on me. Now the comedy store is in my life, and and it just seems to go the way it goes, you know. When you really can't, you really can't bemoan it. Now I do, and I still, I'm a very jealous person. I'll see that someone is getting, you know, this and that, mm-hmm. and I'll be like, God fucking damn it, I'm so much funnier than them. And that's a character flaw. That's my, that's on me mm-hmm. as much. But that you know, because you you've already heard me in this podcast talk about how um um angry i am at the dummies who who laugh at these other people you know um maybe that's just a fault in me that i'm not being generous enough with um how okay people can laugh at what they want to laugh at and good for larry the cable guy for fucking picking that niche or whatever or you could just listen to me and what i said which is that everybody's just cashing in and they're giving out specials left and right and giving out deals and so well it's not that easy though it's not that they're better than you it's just they they (laughs) but it's also not that easy they're just taking advantage of these other people but it's also not that easy like you're you're saying it like oh everybody can get a special, go try to get one. No, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the feeling I think some comedians who are farther down the the ladder are thinking when they when they're looking at at the landscape and they're going, "There's a hundred stand up specials this year. How come I don't have one? Whereas at least yeah. you have one." <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm filming another one, Jeff Garland, and and. And like this, like just certain people mm-hmm. pop into your life if you keep doing your thing. Um, Jeff Garland, who I was just in his, uh, they, he, he just released it to Movie Handsome for Netflix, and he made me his next door neighbor. And Jeff loves my stand up, and he's going to produce another Netflix special oh, for nice. me. And so it's supposed to happen in the fall. We were going to originally tape it in April, but it got pushed to uh, the fall for their next season. Mm-hmm. So. You know that's going on, and that's okay. I just, I'm just such a malcontent, and and I'm doing this show for Adult Swim. Right, that's in season. Your, your pretty uh, face is going to hell. Your pretty face is going to hell, and that's a cool thing. The, the co-creator of it, Dave Willis, has always been a fan of uh, my my stand up, and he thought of me for this role as a demon. <laughs> Him and Chris Kelly, who co-directed, co-created. Uh, they thought of me. I play a not no not I play not a demon. I play a tortured soul in hell. It's it's a workplace comedy in hell called Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. It's on it's on Adult Swim Sundays at eleven thirty, and so that's been a cool thing for me, you know, to be in a in a regular uh, TV show. It's and that really, opens you up to a completely different audience. Yes, like young stoners. <laughs> yes, even though even though you know what's funny is that I'm always performing in front of. Uh, Young people. Right. And they love the shit I do, or they love that character. I guess I'm their fucking crazy dad or uncle. I yeah. don't know what the fuck it is. You know, but I think... I think in that, in that sense, the age helps you. Because if, if, I think if you're right. you were 30 with yeah. this attitude, they might, <laughs> might yeah. not understand it. Yeah. But in your late yeah, 50s, yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think also, you know, you want to stay, re- you know, staying relevant. He was is- probably in Korea. <laughs> Yeah, because they don't but know history. In, the kids don't know history, right? I know, I know they don't. <laughs> history is half hour on a Twitter, half hour ago on a Twitter feed, <laughs> you know, half hour on Instagram. But um, I think that uh, you know, to stay relevant, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be a, th- you have to really kind of be in your life. Like you have to be truthful about your life, and that's always relevant. Like if you're speaking a certain truth on stage about your life and about where you're at and your feelings and your emotions, if you have the courage to do that on stage, that will always resonate no matter what age people are. And I think that's why um, I have I am 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 popular with young kids. 
is because they're they're they know that what I'm talking about is is just truthful. <laughs> And that's all they want. That's all an audience wants, I think, ultimately. And, and you said you, you think it took you a long time to figure that out yeah, for yourself on stage? It took stage? a long time to what? To figure that out for yourself on stage, how to be true. Yeah, because that takes courage. It's, it's not so much figuring it out as, as um, having enough self-acceptance hmm. to, to go up there and expose yourself. Not, but, you know, take out your dick, but... Right, the vulnerability it, of it. Expose the vulnerability of being human on stage, and so many. I watch so many comedians; so many of them don't don't do that. You know, they can be funny and clever, and you know, maybe those right. are the cashing in people. They can be funny and clever uh, about what they say without revealing a fucking thing. Mo- you know what? Most comics, uh, most comics are high status. They're high status. Like they come on stage, like I know shit, and mm-hmm. you don't know shit. <laughs> You know what I mean? And I'm telling you the I'm truth. I'm telling you the truth. Whereas it's not true. You know, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You know, the comedian's M.O., psychological M.O. of a typical comic is they're insecure as fuck. You know, they're, they're, they're compensating with this high status bullshit. And offstage, there are fucking bags of insecurity, which is usually the case. Well, in that case, if, a, if an audience isn't laughing and you're being yourself then they're an <laughs> insecure, the heart, that then is, an insecure person goes oh they don't like me that is they're saying what you they just don't like said, me as a person what you just said is why people don't do it yeah as much because i've been there too where i'm just being you know myself and they're not going for it and that's a horrible feeling and it always makes me you know, getting off stage after that and, you know, the aftermath of that is always like, okay, what the fuck is going on? Like, am I – you like, you really have to go through mm-hmm. a dark night of the soul. That's why so many people don't do stand-up uh, is they, you know, they have one of those shows and they're like, fuck this. Is that is that why you started doing – I remember seeing this at uh, Tell Your Friends, Liam's old basement show. I remember you doing this thing, this, so this must have been about ten, nine, ten years mm-hmm. ago, where you were heckling yourself. Oh, yeah. That, that's become Because like that's my... like a, pro, a preemptive strike. <laughs> You're like, I know what's going on. I will heckle yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm in on it with you, audience. By the way, I did that um, in Edinburgh, Scotland, and they fucking love that. <laughs> that became a huge fucking international sensation. To the point of, yeah. yeah, for me, international sensation, it, it was like everybody wanted to see the heckle bit, you know. <laughs> People still want to see the heckle bit, you know. You should go to Scotland every year then. Hmm? You should go to Scotland every every. No, August. it's too demanding. It's, uh, it's like 27 shows in 28 nights, an hour long, no opener. It was, it was horrible, mm-hmm. you know. But the first year was interesting. I, I, mean, I had no voice at the end of it, mm-hmm. and I was sick by the end of it. The second year was tougher. You know. Well, to close, uh, I was just rewatching your Netflix special, knowing that I was going to talk to you, and um, mm-hmm. in that you said you had a hard time accessing God. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> as, a, as a as a joke or not? That's a true story. Are you able to uh, to? Because my conception of God is just, um, you know, like uh, just seeking peace, right? You know, seeking inner peace. And I find it very elusive and very, uh, for me, difficult. And I make fun of it in a bit where I say, I have friends who are like, you just have to be still, Eddie. God is in this stillness. And I'm like, and they're like, you have to meditate. And I'm like, well, I'm competitive. And I think meditation should be a competitive sport. Uh, and I'd like to do meditation like it's wrestling, like get into another meditator's fa- face and say, my mind is way more still than yours, asshole. Although, don't you think that by going on the road and staying in these nice hotel rooms and relaxing mm-hmm. on the bed all day, isn't that kind of a form of meditation and finding Absolutely. your inner peace? Absolutely. One man's isolation is another man's serenity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like like you just said, you know, as long as it isn't isolating, right. it's just kind of resting. 
and recharging your battery and letting things go because you can be in a hotel room and just be spinning mentally mm. and how is that restful no that's not restful you know what i mean so what do you do if, if meditation isn't the thing? What do you do to, to have a, you know what a, I've been a spiritual doing, connection? You know what I've been doing lately? I've been working with a trainer. I've never been a gym guy, mm-hmm. but I've been working with a trainer uh, for the last uh, year three times a week, and that's really helped me oh. because – and I actually think it's like the physical exercise has actually quieted my fucking mind. Oh, I, I fully believe in that. Yeah. 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 Which is probably why I'm – a little stir crazy because I didn't work out all winter. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say all day. <laughs> no, I live in New York. In the winter, I I don't even feel like going to the gym. It's yeah. too cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. I haven't worked out all winter. But when I but when I move the muscles, yeah. it does. It, it I've also... been doing it. I've been I've been so I've been defeating these demons in my head because I mean I've been working. I haven't missed any sessions. You know, except if, if, you know, I got to be on the road. And then and then I've been surprising the fuck out of myself. I've been fucking, he gave me a hotel room workout or mm-hmm. if there's a gym in the hotel and I've been doing it. That is a quantum leap ahead for me, a guy who would just lay down and uh, I'm fucking doing push-ups, elliptical, you know, weight train, all by myself. And- on the road. In Norway I did it. In the hotel room twice. I, th- I think you're making a lot of progress. I think so. I, and I'm, I'm, I think we had a good session. I think we do too. <laughs> Thanks, Eddie Pepitone. Thank you, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.